Okay, so I just need a little bit of participation at the moment. So I'm going to throw up a couple of things. So Greg, just click once at a time. So the first word, well, let me just start off with the background. This is part two of a one-part sermon. If you can work that out, you're, you're cleverer than me, okay? This was a sermon we never got to finish, which I've developed through the week. Uh, you, weren't, you knew you weren't going to just get a half a sermon, didn't you? Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's been developed through the week. Uh, so we started by, I uh, gave you this illustration of this magician who could take three pieces of rope, all different lengths, and then supposedly magically make them into one length and then into three lengths again, but all the same length, and then back to one, and then back to three again at different lengths. Bizarre. And the question was, you know, is God, you know, one, or is he three? Is he three in one, one in three? Is he like water, steam, and what's the other one? Ice. Ice. Sort of, but not quite. Nothing quite works, because he's all those things simultaneously. That's where it gets a bit confusing. Uh, and, and so that's where we started. I want to go on to section two of that but as I do it look here's here's where some participation would be helpful uh, who here has flown not literally by your own power we mean by aircraft Graham Morag uh, this is only going to work with certain people uh, uh, so uh, look, look Sylvia you don't mind participating do you no thank you very much you're gonna have to shout because I haven't got a mic on you so so you've flown in an aircraft before yeah yeah. Now, just speak up. What do you know about aerodynamics? Nothing. <laughs> no, I, let me ask you, you. You know nothing about aerodynamics. No. no. And yet you fly? Yes. Is, don't you think that's, that's crazy? Faith. Yeah, faith. I mean, so this woman knows nothing about the law of aerodynamics, and yet she's brave enough or foolish enough to step on an aircraft. Why would you do that? You know, not, you just said, you know, nothing about aerodynamics, and it's because of the laws of aerodynamics that that plane stays in the air, and yet you step onto a plane. Work for others. Work for others. That's a good one, Sylvia. Okay, another one, another one. Look, uh, who, uh, who here has done any cooking? And who has put a, sto- a, a pan on the stove? Emma, yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, every, most people, I need, I need another victim. Uh, who's this, this going to work on? Um, uh, yeah, this is, okay. Stephen, what do you, have you ever put a, a pan on a stove and heated something? Yeah, I did, and I'll let Pien take over. Yeah, okay, well, you, okay, well, you are, Pien, let me do you, Pien. You've, you've done some cooking, Pien. Well, I hope you've done some. I'm coming around to your place on Thursday for some cooking. Okay, not to do cooking, to experience the delights of someone else's cooking. But what do you know about thermodynamics? Well, is that it? Is that it? And so would it be true to say you know very little about thermodynamics? And yet, you engage in its laws and you rely on its laws every time you put a pan on a stove or a cooker. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I think I've got a... Yeah, the next, the next wording, please, there. Yeah, no, no I'm not going to ask anybody to know anything about surgery. But here's the thing. We, we do all these things naturally in life. 
and we have no concern about trusting a plane to the laws of aerodynamics. In fact, we don't hardly know anything about it, any one of us, me included. And yet when it comes to God, we have to have him... Oh, you go back, please, Greg. He's fired too, Lee, okay? Right. Uh, backwards and then forwards. <laughs> yeah, see, Lee, it's not just you, is it? <laughs> there we go. And yet when it comes to God, we want to be able to pin him down on a surgical table. We want to be able to dissect his parts and we want to be able to understand every single thing. And if it's God's a trinity, then if I don't understand that, then it's not true. If I can't get my head around that, I'm not stepping onto that plane. If I can't get a proper, detailed, step-by-step, okay, coherent explanation that sits perfectly with me, then I'm not buying it. Can you see my point here? We live and walk through life and we put our confidence in all kinds of things. We know very little about it. And Sylvia, the laws of aerodynamic are absolutely critical to your survival when you fly. And yet you know little about it. Nor me. And so the point is, is that when it comes to God, our creator, we have no right to demand that he fully explain himself. In fact, we have no right to any revelation of God. In our existence as humans, in our, in our pomp and pride, we have strayed, Isaiah 53, so far from God that none of us have any right of access to him. It's a condescension of God that he's come to us, that he's explained something of his nature, of his character to us. He's told us something of his being, that he's this being existing three persons that we're going to look at together. But just because we're not able in our... Look, who's got an infinite mind here? that can collaborate and understand and comprehend at, the, at an optimal level. Who has? Brenton? Yeah. yeah, I thought so too. You know, my gaze went straight onto you. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, look, who, who, who could claim that? And yet when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with the most sophisticated being there, there is in this world. You see, if you're creating something with sophistication... Your own level of sophistication has to transcend the thing you're creating. Can you see the point? None of us can create a project or work on something that is beyond our own level of sophistication. For God to have created humans with, with all our complexities, and if you don't believe you're not complex, you should try and be a pastor for a week. <laughs> human beings are incredibly complex beings seriously and and so for someone to create us means by default he is superior in complexity to us and as such it shouldn't surprise us that he's a little too complicated for us to fully grasp that he's a, a little more complex than i can in a finite mind and world fully understand. And so the first step in appreciating or getting a grasp of who God is is the H word. What's the first step in grasping who God is? It's the H word. And the second word is a U. And the third one is an M. And the fourth is a B. 
humility. Okay. We come to him with humility. He's under no obligation to explain himself to us. But he does. But it's not quite like that when you've got him pinned down, sedated, when you get to dissect him. It's not quite like that. No, God reveals himself according to his own protocol and pattern and desire. And, and here's the wonder of God, because he's so much greater and more complex than us, he, his revelation to us is condescending. Well, that's the wrong term. It's through condescension. It's a bit like this. Look, we've got our little kids. And look, thank you, Tiffany and Theo and Naomi for singing for us. And thank you, Lee, for sharing that lovely testimony. It's great to see what God is doing in your life. But look, if you're explaining yourself to a little child like Theo, your vocabulary would change, wouldn't it? Your medium would change. We have, we have a teacher amongst us here. And I'm sure she better tell us that when she's communicating to the kids, she's using a lot more visual imagery. You know, and she wouldn't speak to Tiffany in the way that she would speak to me. I'd hope not. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. When God is communicating his revelation to us of who he is, it has to be filtered through a myriad of condescension, layers of condescension, in order to make it in any way understandable by you know, pretty th thick people like we are. Seriously. And, and so John 1.1 1, 1 and the whole of the Bible is God's stepping down at a human level to communicate profound things. Which means if we leave here with even a grasp of who God is, boy, you've done well. I'm just making an excuse for my poor preaching, you see. <laughs> okay, if you leave here with even a, a grasp of who he is, you've done well because he's far more sophisticated than we could possibly grasp. But by his grace, we can grasp something of it because he's made an effort to communicate to us. And the great thing about God as a teacher, and as, as I said, there's two teachers in here, three teachers in here, four teachers in here, where does this end? Okay, there's at least four teachers in here and, and, and you can appreciate what I've just completely forgot I was going to say. Okay, but I'm sure you can appreciate that. <laughs> now, look, it's, it's, if you make the effort to teach, it's you're expecting your students to take something away. So we should get something of who God is. We won't get who he fully is. No one but God understands that. So, we can move on. Uh, heading last week was, Greg, if you just move on for me, please. Jesus and God, one is a powerful self-disclosure of the other. That's the important thing we said last week, that Jesus is the quintessential disclosure of God. Remember what he said to Philip, John 14, what did he say to Philip, who, who said, Show us the Father. Just show us Jesus. God, Jesus, just show us the Father. You've been with us three years and we know who you are and that's great and wonderful, but I want to see God. And what does Jesus say to him? Philip, you're looking at him. Don't you get it? Haven't you seen what I did, what I've done? Haven't you heard how I speak? 
Don't you get it, Philip? I am his representation, his physical representation. Everything that God is, is standing personified before you. I am the powerful self-disclosure of the being that you have been grasping to understand all these generations. You see, Philip, up until now, God has only revealed himself in, 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 in minor glimpses, in just snapshots here and there. Moses had a, a tiny one. Jeremiah had a, a bit of a grasp of it. So did Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha. And they gave you these glimpses. But Hebrews 1 tells us what effectively Peter, Jesus is saying to Philip. Now Hebrews 1 says to us, you may know these words. In times past, God has spoken to us through prophets and writings. Okay, the thing about those mediums is, is that they are restricted. You know, if I was trying to communicate to you, Emma, what I'm like through Greg, okay, and he was speaking, you know, there's no way that he can fully exhibit who I am. And for a start, he's the wrong colour. You know, <laughs> so, so it's just, you know, it's, he, just, he just can't exhibit who I am. In the past, Hebrews 1, God spoke to us through, through prophets and writings, and, and so they were restricted. Uh, they, had, they had narrow bandwidths. They could only portray elements and glimpses and snapshots in the dark and momentary. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. Does anyone know the verse? Through his son, and that's a mistranslation. Greg, you want to know that, okay? It's a mistranslation, because that is how it is in most Bibles. But a literal translation is, in these days, God has spoken to us in son. And can you see the difference between God has spoken to us through his son, which is generally how it used to be translated, it's now retranslated, well, at least where it's literal. In these last days, God has spoken to us in son, as opposed to through son. Can you see the point? That God isn't just communicating himself through a medium. Jesus isn't a medium. Jesus is God. Previously, God revealed himself in glimpses through, through, through less than perfect sources. But when Jesus came, God revealed himself in the most perfect way by not coming and, and speaking through a human, but by being human, but in such a way that that humanity that he enveloped himself in was transparent sufficiently that you could, in looking at Jesus, that human character, you could see not a shadow of God, but God in his fullness. That little babe... And, and thanks, Sid. It's amazing how much you and Ricky do for Living Word Bible Church. I don't think Jesus wore that outfit when he was little. <laughs> I'll take back what I just said. <laughs> okay? In that little baby. And here's, here's the wonder of it. Whether that little baby was a baby or when he became a man. He was God in fullness. Let me just take you to this one place. What was that little baby doing 
the moment it was in that crib. What was, as well as breathing and taking in the sights and smells, and remember we said last time this wasn't a five-star leading hotel of the world. This was the scum, okay? This is a stinky place that Jesus was smelling on his entrance into the world. What was he doing simultaneously at that very moment as the baby? It's in Colossians chapter 1. He was simultaneously doing what? And he's doing it now too, and he was doing it as a baby. By him, all things hold together. What was he doing as a baby in that crib, in that smelly environment, as God? He was. He was holding the world together. He was ensuring that the earth was orbiting what body? Hey, some astronomers here. The sun. And he's ensuring that the sun was orbiting, well, at least going around, the solar system. And he's ensuring that the solar system was spinning around the Milky Way galaxy. I hope I'm getting this right. Okay? And then he's ensuring that the Milky Way galaxy was orbiting the universe. That little baby. There was never a moment when Jesus was for a split second less than fully God. Do we understand that? Which means, and I've said this to you before, you know the answer to that, to this. When he was on the cross and when he was being crucified, when he hung there and nails held him to that cross, what was he doing simultaneously? He was doing exactly what he was doing when he was a baby. He was holding the world together. And here's a thought for you. This is an Easter thought, really, but it's worth thinking about. When that soldier, that Roman soldier, was nailing Jesus' arms, hands, to that cross, to the cross member of the, the beam of the cross, his heart was beating in order to generate the blood flow and the oxygen levels in order to enable his mind to function so he could coordinate his hands and the nail who was making that heart beat? that's the wrong answer no because he said that Jesus that's profound isn't it that Jesus was enabling and empowering the heart of the centurion who nailed him to the cross to beat, knowing that in its beat he would be crucified for you and me. It's profound, isn't it? And he was the very voice who later said when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. Well, they know not what they do. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. I won't embarrass you like that again in the next two minutes. Okay, after that, you're, on the, you know, you're up for the, the shooting game. Again. Look, second point in Jesus, and here's, here's where we pick up from last week. The first one was that he's God's self-disclosure. The second point, this is where our focus is going to be today. Jesus and God, well, you know, we're going to try. Jesus and God, one and the same, yet two distinct persons. And, and this is where it gets really complicated. 
And this is where no one really fully grasps who God is. And this is where no one should expect to grasp who God is. Jesus and God, one and the same. I wonder if someone can just get me a drink, please. Thank you. One and the same, and yet two distinct persons. One and the same, and yet two distinct persons. Persons. That's what, we're, that's what we're looking at together. Here's verse 1. We're only doing verse 1. We didn't get very far in verse 1 last week, but we're going to finish some of this this week. Let's see. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's the first, first statement. There's three statements in this first part of this verse here. And the Word was with God, a second statement. And the Word was God, a third statement. We're going to look at all three of those together now. In the beginning was the Word, first one. The word was with God, the second one, and the word was God, the third one. Let's look, let's look at the first one. In the beginning, oh, thank you, Pam. Brilliant. That's lovely. There we go. Let me just put that there. First one, in the beginning was the word. Look, have a think about this. I think that's the next slide, Greg. In the beginning was the word. What's... Oh, I've given away the answer there, haven't I? I was going to ask... What is that essentially telling us? We've already, we said the word is Jesus. We did that last week. It's online. But can you see what that verse is telling us? In the beginning was the word. It's telling us what? And I'm giving you the answer there, silly me. It's telling you what? Yeah. That Jesus is outside of the beginning. This is the, look, the beginning. The beginning is the beginning of everything that we know. Of life, of the universe of matter, okay, of the atom. And John 1, 1 is telling us a very important detail there, that Jesus' relationship to the beginning of existence. And that's the first thing John wants you and I to know, that Jesus' relationship to everything is that he's outside of it. He stands outside of it. That at the very beginning, ever before any other thing, Time included, Jesus is there. Look, we said, about, we said last time again, just a recap, in 14 and 17, that the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ is talking about Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is outside or greater than the created thing. He's before everything. You know, one of the things that the scientists are looking at, especially physicists and astronomers, is trying to find... The, the, the origins of the world were at the very beginning. And the Bible lays that out for us. If we could hear it, at the very beginning, before anything else was triggered. Have any of you done any philosophy at school or college? So some of you will know about Aristotle and logic, that every effect has to have a, do you remember? Cause, did you say that, Des? Good man. Yeah, yeah. Every cause or if, sorry, every effect has to have a cause. And the argument of philosophy, and this is why in ancient times the cleverest people believed in God. Do you know Aristotle, one of the smartest you know, guys of his time, okay, believed in the existence of a God, of whatever description that is, because he understood that the universe was an effect. And therefore Aristotle through the deduction of logic, concluded if the universe is an effect, it needs to have a cause outside of it. John is telling us what? 
that Jesus is Aristotle's cause. Or the same thing that Aristotle said, that, that, that for every movement, there needs to be a mover. Okay? For the, the universe is a movement, it needs something that moves it. That, and, he, and he calls it, Aristotle calls it, the uncaused cause. What's an uncaused cause? So if the universe is in effect, God is the cause, he needs the cause, but that cause has to be an uncaused cause. What do we mean by that? Sorry if it's getting a bit, a bit, bit deep. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially, do you see? See, because if God is a cause, and he's not an uncaused cause, it means that God himself has to have a cause. So you have something outside of God that causes God, who then causes the universe. But Aristotle explained that the, this cause outside of the universe has to be an uncaused cause. It has to be a cause that exists without a cause. He has to be an effect that has no cause. And it's what Jesus said of God. God is an eternal being. And can you see what Jesus is saying by that? It's Aristotle's point. Is that God is a being who is a causer that has no cause himself. It answers the old age question that everybody asks. If you say, you know, you know this was created by God, what's, what's the natural question that people then ask? Who created God? And so, on Aristotle's logic, it is what John 1, 1 is telling us. No. In the beginning was an effect or a cause that itself requires or has no cause. Jesus is the uncaused cause. And that is the answer to, you know, oh, who made Jesus, who made God? God is self existent and and that's not illogical what i'm trying to tell you is aristotle uh, was what do you call someone who deals with logic a logician or something like that uh, whatever it is aristotle who was the master of logic we use his philosophy of logic to this day argued no you can have and you have to expect to have in the in in the existence of things a cause Without a cause. So it's not anti-logic. It's not anti-logic. It's logical. What I'm trying to say to you is you can reason with scientists on there being an uncaused cause. You can have a God without a beginning. Logic demands it. And our existence and science is anchored in logic. Thanks to Aristotle. So here's the point I'm trying to make. God is outside of the created order. It's a bit like this. You can move ahead to the picture, please, for me, Greg. Has anybody here built? Goodness sake, my time is running away. I'm going to struggle to get this sermon finished. Has anybody here built a house? Had a house built? Sylvia. Uh, sorry, not Sylvia. Lynn. Lynn. Lynn has. Lynn. So when your house has been built, I don't know if this is, is this a picture of the house that you had built? <laughs> Pardon? It is, yes, see? I was there, you see? Yeah, 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 like I was. Uh, look, is, is, as a person who's having it built, you stand outside of the thing that you're having built. And I really just illustrating what I've already said to you, that Jesus is outside 
of his created order. Look, I want to move ahead, Greg, to save some time here. Number one, so Jesus is outside of the created order. He's at the beginning of all things. The second thing we're told about Jesus is that the word Jesus, and this is, this is the revelation of revelations, was with God. And can you see where he's putting Jesus? He's putting it outside of creation. He's mentioning God here, okay? And he's telling us, what is Jesus' proximity? Where is he in time and space to the being that we know as God? He's with him. He's with him. And so here's the thing about, we have to appreciate about God. We, we say Jesus and God are one and the same. I asked this question last week, who died for you on the cross? Yes, it wasn't God. It was when we use the term God, we normally refer to the Father. So let me just rephrase that. It wasn't the Father. We have to understand. There's a heresy in the early church. A heresy is a, is a belief that's, that's untrue, dangerously untrue. It's called modalism. I mean, Greg studied theology. Sorry, Greg, to put you on the spot. But you don't understand modalism? Yes. So I won't ask him to, ask him to explain it, but, but I'm sure he could. That God exists in mold. This is why the water, ice, and steam breaks down. Because that is modalism. Why is that modalism? Water, steam, and ice? One thing at once. And the one thing changes from one mode to another mode. And some people have falsely believed that's what God is like. He just changes modes. No, he doesn't. Because John 1 tells us what? Jesus was with God. The two are simultaneous. Okay, so the first thing about the Trinity we have to understand, it's not modalism, it's not one God who just changes forms. It wasn't, God didn't step out of heaven and step down onto the planet and die for your sins. No, Jesus stepped down from heaven and went onto the cross and died for your sins. The point of John 1.1 there is that the two coexist simultaneously as simultaneous entities with their own personality and form and existence they never replace each other they never merge into each other they are distinct and it's why when jesus was on the earth because have you ever thought if they were one and the same person wouldn't it be bizarre that jesus ever prayed why does he pray he prays because he and his father are two distinct entities that coexist alongside each other. It's why, in the economy of things, Christianity is the only religion that has the, the perfect explanation for what God did through all eternity. You see, if God only existed in one mode, in one person, let me ask you, what would God have done all eternity? Well, here's the answer. Well, here's the true answer. What has God done all of eternity? Who knows the answer to this? What has God been doing at the beginning before he made you, before he made the universe, before he made the planet? What was God doing? Who knows? Yeah, before he created, what was God doing before he was creating? Because otherwise, I can imagine it was a very boring existence. Did you say something, Emma? Relating. No. Relating to who or what? Jesus! Jesus. I was say yeah! And this is the thing, Christianity has the perfect answer. What has God been doing for all of eternity? Now, let me ask you. Look, these two got married. This fellow here on my left saw that girl on the right on TV once, singing, and thought, I'm going to marry that girl. I mean, who looks at a girl on TV and thinks I'm going to marry them? 
<laughs> Let me say this way. Okay? Okay. And then he, he eventually married that girl. She's sitting next to him now. When they got together, wouldn't this be true, Ricky, that you were perfectly content and no one else or nothing else mattered? Oh, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? It was a long, long time ago, yeah? You know, don't you, that once you've got your soulmate, you're content. What did God do for all of eternity? He was with his soulmate. The father loves the son. The son, I've got the wrong way around. The son loves the father and obeys everything. What has God done for all eternity? He has been existing in a perfect love relationship. So when he made you, and I used to get this wrong all the time, even when I started Bible college, I got this wrong. Okay, why did God make you? And we all, and we, we all get this wrong. Why did God make you? Yes, it was, that is the right answer. It wasn't what most people think. God made us because he needed us. No. He didn't make us because he was lonely. No. He didn't make us because he wanted some companionship. No. He didn't make you because he wanted somebody to love. No. He's always been perfectly content in a loving relationship with his son who coexists alongside him. No, he made us because he made us. God doesn't give us a lot of explanation why he made us. Okay. But he needed him. He didn't make us because there was any lack, any deficiency in his existence. He didn't need us. Acts 17, Paul tells us, he doesn't need you. He's never, look, I know, I know you're sitting there thinking, no, and I think we do need to know that. God doesn't need and has never needed Montas. I don't figure that high. But here's the wonder of it. Nevertheless, God has loved Montas, Des, for all of eternity. Here's the wonder of it. This is a love relationship in its perfection. Sometimes in our love relationships, if we're honest, so much of it is about us, isn't it? What we get out of it. God, in creating us, did it not for any need, but essentially for love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Greg, I'm going to move on again because I'm, all my time is going. I, don't, I want to finish this sermon today. I mean, because if I keep going at this rate, the, the year will end. Now I want to even finish John 1 1. Okay, so we are going to finish the sermon. Okay, so we're going to come to the last part of our message then. And so the first part was that Jesus has always existed. He's outside of creation. The second part was he coexists. They're not the same person, they coexist. And here's a third bit, and this is where it almost seems contradictory. This is why I said it's too, more, it's too complex for us to fully grasp. The third part is this. Am I here? Make sure I'm plugged in properly here. The third part is this. And the Word was God. Now that seems to flow 
throw a spanner in the works, isn't he? Almost contradictory to what we just says. We said it's two distinct persons, and then the third point is this, and the word was God. So we're saying he's alongside God. He's not the same person. This isn't modalism. They coexist independently, okay, in their own right. And yet, well, what's, if that is the case, what is the third part of John's revelation, or Jesus' revelation to us? And the word was God. What is that adding to? What is that telling us then? Have a think about that. Because it's almost contradictory, isn't it? But it's not, because God cannot contradict himself. If he's contradictory to us, it's because our minds aren't working as well as God's own mind. Graham, I can see you deliberating. I never said you're allowed to ask a friend. Anyone, anyone? Pardon? Yes, quality. Or even just quality. Quality. Equality or quality, they both work. Thank you, Pippa. This is... A statement of essence or quality. Do you know what, what we're saying about that? So what John is telling us through the Holy Spirit, yes, there are two distinct persons, but in quality or in essence. Look, me and Des, in essence, are identical. We are both human beings. Okay? Our DNA compared to uh, a, a, a kangaroo, for example. You know, I think I'll be much closer to a kangaroo than you, Des, because I'm always hopping around at super speed everywhere. But essentially, our DNA will be completely different to a kangaroo's because we share something that, that, that makes us the same in essence. And what John is telling us through the Spirit here is that although Jesus is distinct, in essence, he's identical to God. Here's what a theologian says. Jesus shared the essence of the Father, though they differed in person. Everything that can be said about God can also be said about the Word. Look, the simplest way is like what I just said, Des. Look, if a, if a lion produces an offspring, a lioness has an offspring, that offspring is still, is still a lion. It's fully lying. It's lying in every sense. He can do everything that his parents can do. And what John is communicating to us through the Spirit is that when, we, when Jesus was standing before him, and he only understood this after the cross, he's writing after the cross, perhaps as late as AD 90, and he's telling us, we now understand, I now understand, I only understood it after Jesus came back from the dead, that the man who stood before us was in essence and quality, in structure in DNA, at the smallest level, in the minutest dis- distinction, identical. That's why he said to Philip, Philip, have I been with you all this time? You don't know who I am. It's a bit like, like, like again, if Des went to another planet as, as the expression of humanity, and they said, show us a real person. And that would be humiliating for Des, wouldn't it? Okay? To look at Jesus... And this is why Philip had no idea what he was saying. To look at Jesus and for Philip to say, show us the Father, is humiliating. And Jesus has to say to him, look Thomas, uh, Philip, I am one in essence and quality. So here's the point. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, Jesus is alongside God, is at the very beginning outside it. 
The Word was with God. He coexists alongside Him. The Word was God. He is essentially of the same material. That's a, that's a word of condescension, okay? Of the same material. And so here's my point as I close. What do you do with this? What are you meant to do when God says, here I am? What are you meant to do? I'll give you a clue. Yeah. I won't give you a clue. Okay? <laughs> you know, why bother? <laughs> yeah. When you encounter a being this sophisticated, this awesome, remember, he made you. He made that out there. And he made Saturn with this amazing ring. That's an amazing planetary object. You know, I love Saturn. One of the things I want to do in the new universe, if, there's a, if Saturn's still in existence in any form, is to wander around on his rings. Because it's a fabulous thing. He made that. So when you encounter him, our first response... <laughs> this is... Uh, look, hold this, Greg. Uh, our first response isn't, Oh, you! Why did you do that to my grandpa? No, 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 no. Your first response isn't, I'll get the notepad out. Oh, I've, got, I've got ten questions. I want to ask you, God. No. When you encounter this awesome being, the only response, Thomas, when Thomas, you know, when Thomas realized when it dawned on him, when he touched Jesus, that, that this is God, what did he do? <laughs> he didn't get a checkbook out, a checklist. He fell down and worshipped. And he said, my Lord and my God. When those wise men, and we don't know how many there were, but there probably wasn't three, when they travelled a thousand miles, 1,800 kilometres, is that, is, that is that a good thing? Is that accurate? Okay, roughly. Across harsh desert on camelback, okay, to get to this baby... They didn't stand before him and start moaning about how long it took him to get there. What did they do? They laid gifts down before him and worshipped him. It says they bowed before him. And so here's where this, what this sermon is about. This is why I, I had to complete it before Christmas. Okay? <laughs> because, because when... At Christmas, when we encounter the nativity scene and we think of Jesus as a baby, we've already said this, he was no less God then, in that state, than he was when he was a man. The response to him, this is what Christmas does, it reminds us afresh that the way we approach God, the way we come to him, is how? on our knees in worship worshipping everything I said in the last two weeks was only to tell you that one thing okay it would have been easier if I just told you the one thing wouldn't it worship him come to him bow before him adore him be taken up with him. Have your focus on him. And worship him. He is 
your God, Christian. Amen.